Blog Talk Radio. President Obama talks to the nation about our involvement in Libya, and he's met with criticism, especially by those who urge the no-fly zone in the first place. How will the U.S. manage yet another war, especially when the Republicans keep telling us there isn't enough money to pay for our kids' education? Good day, and welcome to Momocrats Mama Chat, brought to you by BubbleGenius.com. I'm Donna Schwartz-Mills, also known as SoCal Mom, and I'm here today in Los Angeles with Cinematic of K-12 News Network, and from the great Commonwealth of Virginia, we've got Stephanie Emil Nelson, also known as Lawyer Mama. And hi, ladies. Hey. Hello. Hey. Yeah, I'd like to start first by thanking Carolee, Jaylith, Judy, and Julie Piper, who filled in last week so Sin and I could attend a conference. And, you know, I have to say, um, Sin and Steph, I'm so glad that you guys are early birds. Poor Kara Lee had to riff for herself for about five minutes last week. (laughs) You know, it was almost a a one-hour monologue. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, I mean, we we all have a lot to say, but to say it for a whole hour all by yourself is, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. that's a lot of pressure. (laughs) Yeah. That was uh, quite a challenge. Um, So... Before we go into um, our, our never-ending and escalating different wars, um, there, there have been a lot of things in current events this week, and um, I'd like to turn first to something local near and dear to our hearts here in California, and that is our on- ongoing issue with our budget. Um, Governor Brown is doing his darndest to try and close that $26 billion budget gap and he got right off on 13 billion in cuts but now the intransigent assembly and state senate are just not allowing him to do the other half which is to close it with raising revenue and i know sin you have a lot to say about this oh yes 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 i've been in touch with a lot of grassroots parent groups around the state and uh you know, there's just been a lot of holding the breath and waiting in the past couple of days. Um, Governor Brown had been negotiating with, uh, you know, the sort of leaders of the GOP caucus in um, both the Assembly and the Senate. He needed two votes from the Assembly that were Republican and two votes from the Senate that were Republican in order for the legislature to recommend that this, this June vote on uh, extending existing taxes, you know, be referred to the public. So uh, it wasn't something that the governor could just sort of snap his fingers necessarily and say, you know, we're just going to do this, forget you. So uh, at least that was uh, his strategy to get, you know, that buy-in from the legislature. Now, I don't know the full ins and outs of procedure and um, all the rest of that and if it's actually mandated or if indeed – um, it's possible for the governor to kind of call his own election. I do believe that he does have that power, although that may be um, a kind of a lengthier route of gathering signatures and, you know, building momentum that way. And the reason that we're under some time pressure is that um, the existing taxes on gas and, um, you know, other uh, other areas um, run out uh, June, at the end of June. So starting July, those taxes Vanish. So we're having sort of like a little mini version of what happened nationally when the the Bush um, income tax cuts were due to expire. It's sort of the opposite situation. So now we're having something that taxes and revenue that we were counting on and using and spending in our state that are now going to disappear. And so that's why there's been all this um, flurry of activity uh, trying to trying to get in under the wire because, of course, it's almost April and, um, you know, there has to be time to prepare if there's going to be a ballot, you know, uh, just a lot of sort of procedural and bureaucratic things that have to um, go into motion if, if that's going to happen. So uh, yesterday, it was very disappointing, uh, the governor finally called it quits on these discussions and um, it was it was very distressing to me. Um, the Americans for Prosperity uh, Koch-funded uh, conservative front group, which has been, you know, pushing its ideas of uh, quote-unquote pension reform, which almost always seems to mean, you know, privatization of some kind for public employees, or drastically reducing their pensions somehow. Uh, um, you know, a whole host of sort of their 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 golden oldies, their favorite hits, 
you know, that they've been um, subsidizing and pushing and encouraging Governor Walker in Wisconsin, um, you know, the folks in Michigan who are kind of dealing with the same kinds of issues there, in Ohio also with Governor Kasich. Um, so they're basically trying to take this kind of same agenda and do the, the same thing with California as what's happening in those other states. I mean, it's it's just uh, trying to kind of get this agenda in through the back door. And uh, part of the reason we're held hostage to these um, GOP members, which I might add, are in the minority, okay? And to the 2010 elections, if you recall, just really briefly a little flashback, California was one of the states that had victories from the assembly level. Um, we had, a, you know, a state AG um, was Democratic. Our governor, of course, is Democratic. But we are hemmed in by something called the supermajority, which means two-thirds of a vote has to pass any kind of uh, budgetary measure. So yes. thank you, Prop 13. Is. Thank you, Prop 13, you know, <laughs> for screwing us so badly. But um, that's why it is that we're hemmed in by a tiny majority of Republicans who can wield all this power. And year after year, this is why budgets have been delivered 100 days late, you know, 80 days late. Every year it's the same. I, the budget is never delivered on time. And this causes people to lose faith in the process when, in fact, it, we're really held hostage by a small minority of Republicans year after year. And I think, you know, on the national level, you see this with the Senate, where there's somehow the supermajority of, you know, 60 votes or, you know, or more to, to pass something. And, of course, that's an unattainable goal. So um, these parent groups, uh, you know, we refuse to uh, give in to depression and despair. Um, today there's a press, uh, press release going out saying that Five million people represented by about 50 grassroots groups, um, Children Defense Fund among them, you know, some pretty well national names, but then also a lot of just really, really local grassroots groups that um, advocate on behalf of children, um, education issues, uh, racial, social justice, economic justice, all those kinds of good things, um, basically say we, we are ready to vote. Governor Brown, you know, don't stand down. <laughs> we are ready to vote. So if there is somehow some sort of last-minute uh, magic that's able to happen, uh, then we're ready to vote, even if the vote comes later on in the fall. Um, I've heard from people who are knowledgeable, that you know, they say that um, Governor Brown could call something in September. I mean, traditionally we've, we've uh, had these special elections in June or November. It's just that, you know, the electorate is sort of trained, you know, to turn out at those times. And, um, you know, it, it is possible to have them at other times, but it's just a question of, you know, will Governor Brown do it? Um, and uh, what will it take. But in any case, you know, the grassroots are here. We're standing up. You know, we're standing firm. We're totally we're totally su supportive of having a vote to extend the taxes or tax make new taxes on, uh, you know, an oil extraction fee, much like Texas has or much like uh, I would imagine Alaska has, uh, to fund properly, you know, to, to raise revenue. Because I think everything we, that we've heard so far from the Republicans, they have an extreme no-taxes-ever kind of agenda. And, um, you know, we're here to say that you have to raise revenue. The the problem of, of the deficits that we have are... Yes, partly we need cuts, but mostly we need to raise revenue. And, you know, that's pretty much it. We are we are willing and able to do that because this is our kids' education at stake. And uh, some of the worst-case scenario cuts that we've seen, those projections are truly, truly ugly. Um, elimination of entire programs. Um, um, you know, I, I featured a piece on K-12's News Network just recently um, by, mag uh, you know, anonymous Magnet Mom talking about the Magnet Schools program and how these are the, the crown jewels of the LAUSD, um, you know, school system and, uh, you know, how these Magnet Schools, which do a great job of integrating the schools and also highlighting, you know, fabulous kinds of specialized, tailored approaches to education, whether it's arts or music or what have you, or humanities, um, and 
you know, these these kinds of programs might be severely cut back to the point where it would take decades, maybe, you know, for it to come back. Yeah. So the, the cuts that we're looking at are really drastic and ugly, and um, I think, uh, you know, there's increasing unrest, as I see it, among uh, grassroots parents who are just saying, you know, year after year, we're watching our kids come in last, last on the priority yeah. list, along with our seniors and along with, you know, people who are impoverished and uh, the disabled. I mean, you know, it's, it's disproportionately borne by the people in society who can least afford to bear it. Finn, um, before we move on, is there anything in particular that you'd like to urge California parents to do that they can do right now to to let their people know how they feel about this issue? Well, um, you can go to um, – uh, you can definitely educate yourself because I think what people don't understand is the Koch agenda, the Americans for Prosperity agenda. Um, they – Americans for Prosperity in California – um, created this so-called Taxpayers Caucus, a very Orwellian name. It's like, you know, if you called the executioner, you know, Mr. Life or something. <laughs> um, but this so-called Taxpayer Caucus is set up for to implement this extreme no-taxes-ever kind of uh, way of running government or destroying it from within, rather. And they had um, pretty much, it was very partisan, almost you know, just about every GOP member of the Assembly and Senate signed on to that. And then we had, like, five holdouts who were positioned as the moderates. But I think, you know, we just saw them do a song and dance and slow walk their way to, uh, you know, the point where it was too late to really do anything. And then we saw at the last minute these uh, GOP folks bringing in a list of 53 demands that they had just sort of pulled out of nowhere um, at the last minute and, you know, said that, okay, well, we we won't negotiate, you know, unless – we won't allow any sort of June vote unless, you know, these 53 demands are met, and it was, you know, pretty outrageous, uh, pretty much a definition of bad faith. <laughs> so I think, number one, what parents can do is educate themselves. Um, you know, again, these people, the GOP lost. They suffered a crushing defeat in 2010, and I think we really need to see this as we, you know, we rejected these ideas. We rejected these ideas. These ideas, no taxes ever is a kind of extreme take we are not wisconsin we are not you know uh you know we are not michigan we are not going to be any of those other states we're california we don't do it like that um so education number one and number two um i have a post up on k-12 news network which um profiles all of the the main GOP players. So it's called Blocking Governor Jerry Brown's Budget for California, David Cook's Americans for Prosperity and Supermajority Rules. It kind of, kind of explains with, you know, links and documentation, everything that I just discussed. And it also has on it, um, you know, key information about uh, the people who are, um, who, who were sort of the main obstacles uh, in this in this little drama that unfolded, and their phone numbers, their fax numbers, their emails. I think it's really important to stand up and say very strongly and loudly uh, to these people that you know we think you are wrong. You're not listening to your constituents, and you're not listening to Californians. You seem to be, you know, working out of a playbook that was developed by you know whatever Koch Foundation in Kansas or wherever. Uh, so, you know, I urge all California parents to get out there. They think we're just going to lie down and die, basically. And I urge all of us to stand up and shout and say, last I checked, Jerry Brown, Democrat, is governor of this state, not David Koch. So that's my my message. Okay. I urge people to get out there. And what is the URL for K-12 News Network in case it's, uh, people it's are new to us? It's k12newsnetwork.com and... If you just do a search on the site for um, David Koch or Americans for Prosperity, the you know the uh, post should come up. Okay. Yeah. Now I was speaking with Steph before we went on the air, and she saw something in the news today that made her head explode. In her own oh, words, um, yeah. <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> it truly did. Although it, it actually happened um, yesterday, I think uh, yesterday morning. But um, Rick Santorum was in New Hampshire, of course, you know, pontificating about things that he knows nothing about. And he came up with a new theory on why Social Security is in trouble. Apparently, it's our abortion culture. 
all of those, you know, aborted, that doesn't even make aborted sense. babies <laughs> would be paying taxes and supporting our baby boomers right now. But what I thought was really hilarious, if you listen to the, the whole clip, is that he says that our nation's abortion culture, and that's in quotation marks, um, coupled with policies that don't support families, deny America, you know, the more people that it needs to, you know, support Social Security and the Grand Pyramid Scheme, as they call it. Um, and I just thought that was hysterical because in a, a not-so-funny way because last month he said that our nation would be irreparably damaged if we didn't repeal health care. So I'm wondering exactly what policies he means to support families. <laughs> I don't know. Do you yeah. guys have any thoughts on that? You know, they're really good about supporting the unborn, but the minute you're born, you're on your own. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And I'm just, I, I don't know why I'm still shocked by the hypocrisy, but, um, and I don't know if, if it seems like everybody's in, in election mode where they have to say these things for shock value and they get publicity. I mean, it works for Sarah Palin and Michelle Bachman, so why not jump in? Well, but, yeah, um, well. Maybe we should punish women who have no children for not also, you know, depriving, you know, just by simply choosing to be childless for depriving, right. you know, the economy of future taxpayers. I mean, that's, you know. So, <laughs> isn't that every know. time a woman has her period the death of a prospective fetus? <laughs> I mean, we should, we could, yeah. Well, of course they don't like they don't like taxes, but you know maybe we should punish all those infertiles out there too. Oh God, that's so crazy. Uh, they can tie I, the rest of us down, you know, um, and force us to have children, <laughs> and you know, sort of a handmaiden's tale thing. And we yeah. we can all pop out of more for the cause. Yeah, I I'm a little worried because I think that uh, a lot of the right and the re- religious right. Um, need to be informed that The Handmaid's Tale, that dystopic novel by Margaret Atwood, is not a manual. It's you know, horrible fiction of the world gone terribly wrong, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. But anyway, I, just, I had to bring that up because I thought it was you know, not yet another example of a conservative saying that we need to support families, but doesn't actually support any policies no. that support those families. Mm. We'll take care of them while they're in the womb, but then they're on their own. Yeah, yeah. we're going to hear lots of crazy talk. It seems like that is the faction that is uh, running hard for the GOP nomination right now. And um, I heard Howard Feynman say the other day that he fully expected Michelle Bachman to win the Iowa caucus because, uh, oh, after all, too. she is an Iowan, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, you well, know, it's been very interesting, just as a side note, to see Sarah Palin's star falling, and then Michelle Bachman, of all people, put out as sort of the smart version of Sarah Palin, which is just, you know, equally jaw, jaw-dropping and, um, you know, brain-exploding, uh, <laughs> you know, as the, the thinking person Sarah Palin. Um, that yeah, it's so well, interesting. I'm sorry, Donna, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just saying that, you know, it, my instincts, you know, having worked at The Tonight Show as many years as I did for the writers, you know, I, I, you know this is a comedian's dream. You know, bring on <laughs> Michelle. Bring on Sarah. You know, bring on that Cain, uh, Herman Cain. Um, you know, it, it's, it's just going to keep the comedy writers so busy. Well, I hope during the first um, the first uh, debate, she wears those eyelashes from the the State of the Union. You remember <laughs> the fake eyelashes and the makeup. Think she'll look in the right camera next time. <laughs> she'll be looking very presidential. <laughs> yeah. I laugh, but it's really disturbing how much play these people get. And, you know, I think that we're dealing with a really out in, um, you know, a, a, a population, a general population that is, you know, just not keeping up with the with the blowback details. But, um, you know, so there's a, a lot of ignorance is allowed to get over. 
Well, and I don't get where the whole thinking person Sarah Palin reputation comes from. I mean, <laughs> did people listen to her? I mean, I didn't think it could get any worse than Sarah Palin, but then along comes Michelle Bachman. Uh, yeah. Well, the bar is very low on that side. It is. Yeah, I almost think that Sarah Palin is the thinking person's Michelle Bachman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, we could debate oh. that for a long time. <laughs> um, I think we have time for one more current event before we go into the topic du jour. Um, did anybody see the New York Times op-ed today about TARP benefiting only the big app banks? Apparently, they are now 20% larger than they were before the economic crisis. Uh, I haven't read that, but I'm going to have to check it out. I'm so not surprised, though. Yeah. 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 Too big to fail just got too bigger to fail. (laughs) Right, right. Well, you know, at the same time, you've got that Walmart suit, and there's an op-ed in Huffington Post today about how Walmart's too big to... uh, too big to uh, to sue. Mm. And, of course, it turns out that the Walton Foundation, along with the Koch brothers and the, the foundation that the parents, the guy that started Blackwater, are behind um, some of these anti-union laws uh-huh. that are being put in the State Department. So I saw that on Maddow's show yesterday, which um, was incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, like they've been subpoenaing, you know, people who, who are pointing it out, people in... in the universities. So it, it the many tentacles of the Koch brothers. Yeah. I mean I I keep I keep joking about this that I'm going to turn into a leftist Glenn Beck and get out my chalkboards cuz I'm seeing conspiracies everywhere these days. But it doesn't seem that far-fetched. No, it doesn't. I mean, did you all um I just read this morning about a Wisconsin professor who, um, That's for his the first one. Book yeah. on a blog, and you guys may have seen this too, was, was talking about um, you know the governor and, and what was going on and, and sort of connecting the dots. And then the next thing you know, he's slapped with a Freedom of Information Act right. request for all of his emails from his university For all account. his emails. How right. dare he exercise you know, his freedom term. of speech? Right. And yeah. it's not, you know, right. And it's not like they're looking for something. I mean, they're looking for him talking about Republicans or talking about Governor Walker in a derogatory way so that they can release them. And it's just bullying in some ways. I mean, don't get me wrong. I am all about transparency in government. And everyone has the right to make Freedom of Information Act requests. And if they cover emails in the university system, then, of course, they should release them. But I just hope that it makes people aware of exactly who they're dealing with. Well, it's also very uh, unsettling because, you know, this is kind of like the the thin edge of the wedge uh, to McCarthyism, you know, without trying right. to be too alarmist. But really, you know, um, I think that professor, that professor should say, uh, you know, I'll turn over um, my emails under FOIA if uh, Governor Walker uh, turns over his uh, emails under FOIA because I would certainly be very interested, given the, you know, the prank phone call where, you know, the yeah. pseudo-David Cook was saying, hey, how's that union-busting effort going, you know? And Walker was uh, sort of talking to this fake David Cook like he was uh, an employee talking to his employer. Uh, you know, I think there could be some very interesting emails there. So that, you know, that would kind I of be my suggestion you know, I, back. I, right. I wouldn't be surprised if there are. Um, there was a Freedom of Information Act request to get Governor Walker's email from constituents about mm-hmm. what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And um, they they started out fighting it, but um, it was pretty obvious that they, you know, were in the wrong under the law, and they actually ended up paying attorney's fees to the um, the press groups that were requesting the emails. So they, so they've they been released. Some. So I wouldn't be surprised if they were requesting others. Yeah, I can't imagine they That's wouldn't good. be. Mm-hmm. So that'll good. be interesting to see what comes out of that. Yeah, the FOIA works both ways. Yeah, but I mean, the main difference is that you know you have a governor who's obviously a public figure, and then you have a professor who is much, a much in a much much lesser way a public figure. Um, you know, so I think there's a huge disparity there in terms of like, um, you know. Who who really should have a fishing expedition conducted against them and could be you know 
conceivably intimidated and retaliated against at at his workplace, as opposed to the governor, who um, who's going to you know intimidate and retaliate against the governor? Nobody. He's the chief chief executive of the state, <laughs> you know. So uh, yeah. Anyway, I just I mean to point out that there's like an asymmetry in the uses of FOIA that you right. know. Used against well, the powerful, that, keeps them in check. Used against the relatively perilous, it's you know an right. intimidation tactic. Right, and there are there are some exceptions under FOIA too for information yeah. that they don't have to reveal. And I'm I'm hoping that the university will will use that, but it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, we are going to move into our main topic. But first, I'd like to once again plug our wonderful sponsors, Bubble Genius. And, you know, they're very appropriate send a soldier a shower campaign. I know I talk about this a lot, but I just, I love this campaign because, you know, for too long, you know, the left has been accused of not supporting our armed forces. And the truth is we appreciate, you know, we love our country as much as the right. And we just have a different opinion of what that means but I think we're all united in our appreciation and support of our military. And it's just shameful that our people who are out there fighting need just basic supplies. And so I love this buy a soldier a shower campaign because you can send them a foobar and you don't even have to do the actual sending. The Bubble Genius ladies will do it themselves. I mean, I'm on their buy a soldier a soap page right now and you can do it for as little as a dollar. They've got these really cute transportable soaps that are um, themed. They're you know themed for whichever branch of the military you want to send the soap to, and it's described as a small, easily transportable soap with a fresh green unisex scent. And I just love the campaign. I think it's it's awesome. Um, Sin, have you been on the site lately? <laughs> yeah, I I love it, and I love also, I mean, obviously, you know, the U.S. military supplies its soldiers with soap, so it's not that they have no soap whatsoever, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it's really more um, just, uh, you know, the gesture, and, and then um, also the gesture saying, we remember you, we are thinking about you, you know, we we have your, your um, well-being, you know, in mind and in heart, uh, but I think it's also the fun of just being able to choose. I mean, you can choose the foobar bar of soap, mm-hmm. but you can also choose, you know, rubber duckies and other things, a little more whimsical. So it's just kind of a really nice, fun, you know, little surprise to receive, you know, when you're far away from loved ones and, you know, friends and family. And so it can be just, you know, a nice a nice thing to, to yeah. get in the mail right. and just, you know, have some whimsy and some fun, you know, in the midst of, uh, you know, pretty tough uh, circumstances and, and tasks that, that you know folks over there have to do, and it's much better than government issued soap. <laughs> <laughs> that too, it smells really, really price. good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So exactly. Um, anyway, I have to say, you know, as a military family member, I I just love to see when um, when any company or any individual supports our military and. I think the environment now is so much different than it was, say, in the Vietnam era. And um, I think people on both sides of the aisle, I think everyone supports our our troops. Whether or not you support the policy is something else entirely. Mm -hmm. But I think we can all get behind supporting our troops. Absolutely. Thank you, Bubble Genius. (laughs) So anyway, um, the news this morning, you know, we're going to talk about Libya. And did any did anybody catch the president's speech on Monday? I watched it later. Mm-hmm. But um uh you know, I, I think people were a little disappointed that he didn't say, Here's exactly our policy in the Middle East for the next ten years and here's what we're gonna do you know, <laughs> next month and and you're not gonna get that from you know, in a presidential speech. I mean, come on. No. But I thought he made some good points about why we're doing this. Um, and you know, there's there was a public uprising, and you know we're we're facing mass slaughters in Libya. And you know, if we're ever going to use our military might for something good, this would be it. Yeah. So I thought it was a good speech. Um, you know, if you guys want to talk about um, the policy itself and 
and you know why we're doing what we're doing and all of that, we should definitely um, discuss that a little more. Because I have to admit, I'm 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 torn too. I, I see both sides. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of ambivalence, definitely, and and even um, you know even on the right, there's sort of like division in terms of like people who favored the no-fly zone, and now suddenly that we went and did something about it, now they were kind of against it, and, I, and it's hard for me to tell just how much of that is you know partisan, uh, you know. Positions. Oh, you mean like Newt, opinions. who hmm. was for the no-fly zone before he was against it, just right. because Obama <laughs> in, implemented it? Uh, I mean, you know, is this is this purely for political posturing? Uh, and if so, like that's really um, distasteful to me because people's lives are at stake, you know. Um, and I think the other thing is is that uh, uh, um, uh, a famous. Um, sage of the of the political scene, George W. Bush used to call that flip flopping. So, <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, that's it's also kind of uh, distasteful to me that you know someone's positions could could change so easily, be so thoughtless, and you know change so easily. So it seems to me to indicate a real lack of um, uh, conscientiousness and and you know gravity uh, in terms of in terms of what's happening. Yeah. You know, right. Repercussions, right? Um, right. Where it's not—it's not about a soundbite. It's—it's about yeah. people's lives. Right. Um, and and I posted a, an alternate uh, piece up on our Momocrats Facebook page, um, which also talks about you know, divisions on the left. You know, people saying that mm-hmm. there are there, there are real good instances where humanitarian intervention using military force um, is called for. And you right. know, and other people on the left saying, absolutely no, no, you know, no, there can be no justifiable, uh, you know, sort of intervention, and and also for very good reasons, because yes, what is our sort of long range plan? Are we just sort of reacting and responding to um, uh, immediate kind of circumstances? What about the other nations in the Middle East, Yemen, you know, Bahrain, uh, Syria, you know, all those places where there's also unrest and where the citizens are also, you know being beaten down literally by, you know, the forces in power. So, yeah, it's it's very, very complicated, very complicated. Right. Well, I think well, a lot of it has to do with, with, right, with what you think the role of, of our government and our military should be. Um, and I think we're always going to have conflicts there. But uh, what really gets me is, is people trying to compare this to Iraq, and saying, oh, the president's doing exactly what Bush did in Iraq, and, you know, there's this attitude of um, – my husband actually posted on his Facebook status update last night, um, you know, four years ago, you must support the president in a time of war, and then now, unless he's black and a Democrat. And uh, I, I, I can't believe your husband did that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, actually, yeah. One of his uh, one of his friends said that to him, and um, you now I hate to think that it's that crass, but political posturing around military issues just really makes me angry. And I, I yeah. think the two of you understand why, because you know I know and love so many people who are personally affected by our foreign mm-hmm. policy um, as a military family member. So yeah, that just <laughs> that really gets me. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I don't, I don't. Right now, I, I sort of took an informal poll of some of my military family friends to see what what the feeling is there, and I think um, generally I'm hearing overwhelming support for what the president mm-hmm. has done, mm-hmm. um, going across party lines. But um, if if we end up with ground troops in there, that's an entirely different matter. Entirely, I, yeah, I can't see that. I can't see support for that coming from our military families. Yeah, military families. You guys are already stretched like way too thin. I mean, this this constant, all these tours of duty, one after another. Right. Well, we've been facing ten years of war. We've never faced that before, and we have an all volunteer force. You know, about one percent of the country, um, you know, one percent of the country serves in the military, and so that one percent and their families have been doing this for the last ten years, and we've never seen this before. I mean. Not even in World War II, um, mm-hmm. and you know we had yeah. much more participation, and uh, it's it's a real problem. And we're stretched thin. We don't have enough money for um, basic services. The VA is a mess, and we're going to see problems down the road too. Even if we pulled out of 
you know, Iraq and Afghanistan entirely right now and stopped bombing Libya and, and did nothing outside of the borders of the United States, we would still have problems because part of the cost of war is what happens afterwards. Mm-hmm. We're already yeah. seeing higher rates of suicide, um, you know, mental, other mental illness issues, alcoholism, drug addiction, and it's going to keep happening. Mm-hmm. Only this yeah. time we're dealing with a much longer, much more sustained problem so I think it's going to be compounded. We're also seeing problems with military families as well, secondary PTSD, more issues with children, and more issues with um, with caregivers. We're seeing increases in suicides among military family members. And these are going to be long-term problems that require care and money. And it's part of the cost of war. So we cannot handle another ground invasion. We just can't. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, when the when the news first came out that you know as part of the um, alliance, the NATO alliance, uh, that you know we were we we had to kind of pony up uh, and join in the enforcement of this no fly zone. Um, you know, my my initial sense was dislike, and and I think um, you know it, it, I'm a jumble of of emotions and thoughts on this, um, but I think my my instinct is. Is very much about the cost of war, and not just simply the hundred million dollars or whatever it was that was cited, you know, for every day and every rocket that gets exploded over there. But, but really, like you were saying, the human toll of this. I mean, um, a decade, you know, a decade of people committed to um, our military endeavors elsewhere, and and. You know, we haven't, uh, as you said, we have barely begun to grapple with that. And, um, you know, the other day it was the anniversary of the death of Carol Lombard, the actress, um, back in, what was it, the 40s, I believe. And and uh, It was during died, World War II. Yeah, she died yeah. In, a, in a plane crash. And she died because she was um, a Hollywood actress and celebrity who was going around campaigning for everyday folk to buy war bonds. And that just brought home to me, you know, another way in which um, the, the the sort of burden of these kinds of things is, is not, you know, being shouldered by any of us except unwillingly and sort of in these very, you know, backdoor ways. I mean, it was only recently under Obama that, you know, the sort of war costs, were now added to the bottom line, and well, uh, amazingly, we had this enormous deficit, you know, but, <laughs> which we somehow didn't have during the Bush years, just because you know he didn't add it to the ledger, you know, that kind of thing. Just to and and that right. became part of the whole Tea Party thing. Oh my God, the deficit has exploded under right. Obama. Going back to, to um, a lawyer mama's, uh, you know, husband's point, right? Suddenly we yeah. have, you know, and this is African American president, and so now things are all his fault. But, uh, you know, that aside, I mean, I think that's kind of where I have just really grave, deep hesitations, and, and it's sort of hard to um, just limit the action to the action itself. You know, of course, when you go in there, then there are repercussions. Um, you know, there's I hear mutters about, well, maybe Qaddafi will, you know, go into exile. He'll agree to go into exile. That, well, that would be certainly very convenient. Like, I guess Mubarak, that's, that's sort of his move, right? <laughs> but... Um, it, you know, it seems unlikely also that he would just go so easily because, you know, his sons are there. They're also part of his power structure. I mean, he's obviously very entrenched. You know, is it likely they'll have a public election soon? You know, when was the last one that they had, if they ever had one? You know, I mean, so just looking at um, kind of the terms of engagement, it's just very hard to sort of limit it to just this one little area and then think that there are no repercussions or think that you're not able to, you know, think that you're able to avoid getting drawn in, uh, you know, in, in, in other ways. So I think it's very I, I, eerie. This yeah. morning, this morning the Libyan forces, the, the rebels are in retreat. And mm. what I'm reading in the papers today is that um, the new debate is whether we should arm them Arm the rebels, and to me that just that just smacks of what went wrong in Afghanistan, where we trained Osama bin Laden and his followers, mm-hmm. and you know they turned against us, mm-hmm. and you know right. how, how far do you go? Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. I'm afraid we're going to end up in a pissing match here. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in, in terms of military conflicts, what's going on right now probably has you know the least amount of toll in, in terms of human capital. Um, you know, bombing from afar, 
occasionally there are going to be accidents and things like that. That always happens. But you know, we do this we do this fairly frequently. But you know, if that doesn't work, what like what you pointed out, Donna? Do we start arming them? Do we mm-hmm. start training them? Do we mm-hmm. send in ground troops? I mean, it's it's a slippery slope, and I, I'd I'd really like to hear from the president and the administration exactly where that line is. I don't think they'll tell right. us that, but you know, that's what I'd like to hear. I mean, now of course, you know, this is supposed to have been handed off to NATO, but but then again, we're the majority of NATO, right? Right. Well, it, it is good, I think, that we didn't take the lead with bombing, you know, to start with, and that there was a, an actual, you know, UN security re- resolution here. I think that at least helps our credibility with the rest of the world some. But, you know, again, we still end up in the same pissing match position. I don't think this is Iraq by, by any stretch of the imagination. And, you know, who knows, maybe 10 years from now we'll still be trying to enforce a no-fly zone and, you know, just like we did for years and years with Iraq. And maybe that's all it will yeah. be. But I don't know. Yeah, it's just so difficult that we already are in Iraq on the ground. We're already in Afghanistan on the ground. The Taliban is, you know, outside of Kabul, the the, the Taliban is, is back and... I just don't know where the end where the end game is on any of it. We just seem to get more and more mired in in all these events outside our country, while inside our country we're all fighting amongst ourselves. Yeah, and the and the bread is you know being stretched ever more thin, you know. <laughs> uh, and and I think that people um, at home, um, you know, it's it's very hard to. Um, counter someone who says, you know, there have been people who are unemployed for more than 99 weeks. Uh, you know, the jobs that have gone offshore, are they ever coming back? What's happening to our domestic economy? Can we ever get our manufacturing sector back again? And, you know, to uh, have those people rightly demand, you know, for some kind of solution um, and at the same time um, see this apparently unending, you know, funding for um uh, you know, foreign policy, which seems to involve a whole lot of, uh, you know, military action that is, to my mind, has, you know, not really had a clearly defined exit strategy. I mean, I thought one thing that was very interesting um, not too long ago was that Senator Gillibrand of New York, Christian Gillibrand, um, came out with a, a um, either a statement or a resolution in the Senate, I'm not sure which, but uh, she basically uh, was was trying to say, um, July 2011, um, hello, <laughs> I don't know if anyone remembered, you know, Obama's uh, speech discussing, um, you know, what his um, either continuation or, or cessation of uh, our presence in Afghanistan would be, um, I think it was at West Point, um, but he, you know, delivered a speech in which he said that July 2011 we would begin uh, departing from Afghanistan also. Now, we've had something of a drawdown from Iraq, but it seems to me uh, that it's it's sort of been a name only. That's, you know, we, we could debate and, you know, there are reasons why people would think one way or the other way about that. But um, at least nominally, you know, we've we've gotten out of there to some extent. And so now the question is with Afghanistan – uh, you know, are we going to hold to that July 2011 deadline? And if so, then, you know, what are the conditions that we are leaving behind, you know? And if not, we're going to stay there, then, you know, what is sort of what's the exit strategy, like I was saying? What's the end point? Uh, or, you know, because 10 years is already a very, a very long time. Right. Well, I think we'd all like to hear the exit strategy. Yes. And you know, in terms of troops in Iraq, too, I mean, keep in mind that we still have anywhere at any given time between twenty five and 50,000 troops get, uh, stationed in South Korea. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and, and how long ago is that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is an ongoing thing, and, and there's no way they can pull out all of the troops. Um, you know, it's just it's just not possible unless we're just going to leave them to chaos. And, you know, it's the same problem in Afghanistan. We've got this, you know, the whole pottery barn rule. You broke it, you bought it. But where do we draw the line? Mm -hmm. And it has to be drawn somewhere. Right. Do you foresee us getting into a situation where we're going to end up expanding the military? Oh, the draft. 
Yeah, this comes up, um, you know, in my military family circles all the time. Mm. And people people are torn. Um, you know, it goes both ways. Uh, on the one hand, it would be nice to see the rest of the population engaged in what's going on in Afghanistan and Iraq and et cetera, et cetera, not just dependent on the news cycle. Um, mm-hmm. Because, I mean, you see that again and again. It's just not in the public's eye. There's, I think there's on, ongoing, there's been a lot of support for military families, but there are a lot of issues regarding what's happening and op tempo, operation tempo, and um, years upon years of deployment that the public is just not very aware of. Mm-hmm. And uh, so people go back and forth. Some people are like, heck yeah, they should have a draft. Everyone should understand what this is like. But then there are, I think, the majority of people are like, you know, we, we really don't need to be in that sort of a situation. Um, there were a lot of problems caused by the draft um, during the Vietnam era. And I don't think anybody wants to go back to that. I mean, we do have an all-volunteer service that's, you know, having some issues. But, you know, again, if we add more people, that's more money, too. I mean, where's that going to come from? Mm-hmm. Just, of course, uh, with, with so much unemployment, maybe that's an employment program, you know? <laughs> that's Yeah, there you go. You can't find a I job. I say tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> well, another problem we have that, that hasn't been talked about are the higher rates of unemployment among, among veterans coming mm-hmm. back from the yeah. war. Mm-hmm. Those who've gotten out um, in, the, in the younger age brackets have a much higher rate of unemployment than civilians do. So, um, you know, and there's been some debate back and forth about why that is. But, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a definite issue, and, and we can't rely on the military to, to lower the unemployment rate, I don't think. I don't think that's an option for many people. I don't think we want people joining the military solely to make sure that they can keep bread on the table. Um, yeah. You know, we want people to, to join the military because they want to serve their country. You know, for the same reason you become a teacher or for the same reason you serve in government or the same reason you go out and volunteer for, you know, at your local shelter because you want to make a difference. Mm-hmm. And those yeah. are the people we want in the military. Right. Um, and I think that um, I was going through the No Child Left Behind uh, law of 2002 um, as part of K-12's news network, I, I plan on posting it online for um, in, a, in a format where people can read it section by section and then also comment paragraph by paragraph uh, as a way to kind of have some crowdsource, you know, discussion of, of where it needs to go and be changed, um, you know, under the reauthorization that President Obama is looking for. But that aside, um, I happened to notice that there was a program called Troops to Teachers, and I just thought that was actually something very interesting. So, um, you know, the problem is that No Child Left Behind was, I think, funded for five years, and the law was enacted in 2002, so any kind of funding has really sort of dried up, you know, at 2008 at the the outmost. And so here we are in this twilight zone where, uh, you know, without reauthorization, then there's kind of no appropriations to kind of go along with whatever the new version of the law might be. But that, you know, I thought was a very interesting um, kind of approach to take someone who um, is a veteran and to say, you know, we're going to underwrite um, whatever kinds of training and credentialing and, you know, additional education programs that help folks, you know, go into the teaching profession. I just thought that was uh, kind of an interesting part of that law that I didn't know was there before. Oh, that's cool. I would love yeah. to see that as well. That That's nice. I mean, we provide a lot of benefits for our veterans, and, of course, there's the, the G, new GI Bill. Um, yeah. But encouraging people to become teachers, it doesn't get any better than that. Yeah. So when uh, when I have it all up online, I will definitely invite, you know, all military staffs and families and veterans to come on over and take a look at that part of the law. And, uh, you know, that would probably be a good way to get informed on what was there and then if people have suggestions on, you know, how to improve it or uh, where to go with it next, um, you know, you should be able to leave a comment, et cetera. And then hopefully that's the kind of thing you can take that information out of that sort of community discussion and then go to your lawmaker and say, hey, you know, this particular part of No Child Left Behind is of interest to us because X, Y, Z, and, you know, let's build up that part of the program or what have you, you know. So that's great. Right. Discussion we conversation right. we're hoping to spark. Yeah, that's great. I think that'll that's great. be great no, service. Right. No, I hope it doesn't end up with a situation. I have a a friend who got out of the navy. His wife is in the navy as well, so he's the he's the military spouse now, who's been um, 
he went back, he was a lawyer by training in the UK, and he went back to college to train to be a teacher, but he can't get a job mm. because of all budget cuts. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a problem as well. But, um, you know, it's that, that, I mean, I can't think of anyone that I'd rather have teaching my children than someone who understands the value of public service. Mhm. Yeah. 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 And uh, you know, so we need to we need to kind of make sure that people understand that public employees are not, you know, fat cats <laughs> with like, you know, <laughs> plush pensions that the taxpayer is funding, you know, I think I think people don't understand like teacher pensions, you know, you you pay for that yourself like you pay into it <laughs> you know it's out of your own salary which yes comes from the taxpayer but it's not like an extra thing that you know taxpayers you know all dump into so I, you know it's more complicated than that but i think the the uh, general impression is, is in- inaccurate and and i just want to say like i you know in some ways i i consider people who are in the service as also public employees you know they are um you know charged- yes they are yeah, they're charged with with carrying out you know some of the most dangerous things that the American people can ask uh, other citizens to do, and and they do it, and you know that is that is taxpayer money, you know. Right. Well, and when you when you join the military or when you take any federal job, you have to take an oath and you uh-huh. swear to um, uphold and protect the Constitution of the United States. That's right. So they're working for us. That's right. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I just wish people could kind of get off the whole thing of like public employees, you know, they're so they're leeches, they're horrible. It's like what are you talking about? These are like the people who teach your kids and <laughs> you know, do all these things that you need. <laughs> they make everything some, uh, work. Yeah. You know. It it's I cannot imagine how it would be if I was responsible for putting out the fire in my own house, if, yeah. if God forbid, it mm-hmm. came on fire. Or, yeah. you know, I, I suppose the Second Amendment people think that we should all just carry guns and protect ourselves that way, but I'd much rather have <laughs> someone big and, and in uniform and trained to come out here and, and help yeah. me if I've got an issue. Right. Well, maybe you should have um you may make sure you have a very expansive medical kit in case you need to perform you know jump start your own heart or perform your own tracheotomy you know anything right. like that that's yeah right. yeah have yeah. have my own defibrillator just sitting here in case somebody has a heart attack i I do sort but. of prefer that my peace officers know have a nodding acquaintance with the law, you know, so that there isn't just sort of random you know vigilantism going on. Right. I, nice. Did you all, did you all right. see that? I saw this yesterday, and I cannot remember where. I think it's something I just saw passing either in a Twitter stream or on Facebook about some town that is trying to cross-train their police officers as firemen. I did women. see that. Is, that, see that? Nuts? is that nuts to have one employee to do both? You know, that's a little insane. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. You know... The budget cutting, I'm sorry, you know, it's it's just this whole idea that we can do it all by being more efficient and cutting and, you know, never have taxes again. Like like you said earlier in this hour, Sin, I mean, I just do not understand that. I mean, I don't like paying taxes any more than anyone else does, but I like having services. And if we have a big deficit then we need to pay for it. If we've got a war going on, we need to pay for it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, I don't know when it went so crazy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, dear. Well, we, I mean, I think that uh, I, in spite of all of the nuttiness, which is prominently featured on the evening news, because, you know, hey, it makes for good TV, Um I would like to believe that most people are reasonable, um, generous, um, capable of understanding very simple, powerful ideas and also very complicated ideas if they just kind of, you know, sit with it a minute and and think it through. And, um, you know, I really think that uh, we have a mass media that doesn't help us. And um, it's, it's really hard to get through that cloud of, misinformation and 
partially accurate information and uh, plain outright uh, lying, you know, right. <laughs> that is out there. So, um, you know, I the next uh, election cycle is coming up, and, you know, what we try to do at Momocrats, of course, is, you know, sift through the, the nonsense and, and give people the good stuff. But, uh, you know, I'm really hoping that um, I think that the crisis can be very clarifying as well as very confusing. And I think that, you know, in a time of, of still pretty high unemployment and all the rest, I mean, I think that people are are forced to clarify their priorities. And I think simple common sense will tell you if our population is growing and continues to grow, and why wouldn't it, uh, then there can then it's just not going to work to have taxes, at, at, you know, revenue coming in at the same exact level as before, if not, going, you know, bringing it back to 19-whatever, 89 levels, you know. I mean, it's just not going to work. You have more people, and you have to account for that. And I think, you know, pointing people at corporations, I mean, I think it's been going around the New York Times and everywhere else, GE paid like no taxes. Yeah, <laughs> on their profits, and and you know the, that's not the only corporation out there that has enjoyed yeah. that privileged status. So, you know, asking people over and over again to look at you know tax season is coming up for a lot of us, and uh, you know asking people to look at what you pay in taxes, and then ask, hmm, this multi-billion-dollar corporation paid no taxes on their profit. What is wrong with that? Or maybe they got like an enormous $150 million rebate or something. You know, really, for what? Really? <laughs> you know, who is not carrying the weight here? Right. My yeah. LLC paid lots of taxes this year. I'm thinking maybe I need to incorporate. <laughs> yeah. You need to be yeah. on mobile with, you know, record, record profits this quarter yet again, you know. Exactly. <laughs> well, I think everybody should incorporate because that's the only way we're going to have all the full rights. You know, only corporations get complete full rights in this country these days. Mm. So, on that lovely note, <laughs> um, before we wrap everything up, I would like to, to make note of the passing of someone who meant a lot to all of us as women and Democrats. And I'm not talking about Liz Taylor, although, you know, I admire her. Very much too, but but Geraldine Ferraro, who in our um, in the blurb describing this week's show, I described as the original Momocrat. She was the first official serious vice presidential candidate for president. You know, almost thirty years before, um, or rather thirty years before Sarah Palin was nominated by by the Republicans, mm-hmm. and you know it. it was quite a shattering of the glass ceiling, at least for my generation. We, we'd never seen anything like that. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely I give her props, and I also see her as a little bit of a cautionary tale because I think that there's a way that um, your out, one's outlook can get a little brittle. And um, for me, at least, I know she said some things during uh, the 2008 election which caused my eyebrows to shoot way up off my forehead um, in terms of, you know, uh, Obama's qualifications and, you know, how easy, quote-unquote, it was for him. And so it just seemed to be falling a little bit into, like, the oppression Olympics, um, you know, more for my taste uh, than I I preferred. But that said, I, I absolutely do recognize that she did break important ground and uh you know that that was not an easy time um to to do that to be a a vice presidential nominee no it absolutely was not and our colleague Joanne Bamberger pundit mom um she's written about um Ferraro remembering her and also pointing out that it's been kind of quiet with the uh, political women on the right they um were pretty silent about Ferraro's passing, and I think that all of us, as women who are interested in politics, owe a thank you to Ferraro. And so um, I I just couldn't see us uh, finishing this week without talking about her. Um, Steph, do you have anything Um, to conclude? 
Oh, yeah. Well, if I could say something about Geraldine Ferraro, too. Um, I was 12 years old during the 1984 election, and um, my parents were rather apolitical. So they didn't discuss politics with me at the time. But I remember looking at her and thinking, wow, just wow. I couldn't think of a better role model to have at such a formative time in my life. And so I will always think of her in that sort of hero worship way, um, despite some of the things she said when she was older. But I do think it's a shame that, that Sarah Palin was the one charging from the right to uh, remember Geraldine Ferraro. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. on that note, we've got less than 10 seconds. We're going to be back next week at blogtalkradio.com slash mommacrats. And be sure to visit our website at mommacrats.com. Thanks to Stephanie Emil Nelson, Cinematic. I'm um, Donna Schwartz-Mills saying goodbye for the Momocrats. <laughs>